good morning, everyone. So glad you're here. Uh, there's a, uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, once sang a love song to God's people. As I thought about John 15, I, I remembered this song. But back in Isaiah 5, uh, a song quite like any song that we might sing today, uh, a song you probably won't soon forget, especially when you uh, think of it through a, a New Testament perspective, but it's in Isaiah 5, and it says, I will sing about the one I love. Uh, it's about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, he cleared it of stones, and he planted one of the finest vines, a choice vine. He built a tower in the middle of the vineyard and even dug out a wine press there. And he expected it to yield good grapes. Uh, when have you so deeply invested yourself in something, loved something so deeply, you spared no expense, no measure. You just poured yourself out for the potential of something. A while back, I was at Lincoln Memorial Gardens, and they have these different placards and signs and stuff uh, that tell the story of the frontier or different aspects of things. And I was reading about how the settlers faced these unimaginable obstacles. Uh, it's true that we live on some of the most fertile soil in the world here in Illinois. But in order to get to it, men had to bust through the thick roots of the prairie grass. And by the sweat of their brow, at great peril to themselves from sickness, disease, hunger, wild animals, uh, the difficulty of isolation itself, they trailblazed through thick brush and thorns and thistles and hospitable woods. And when they found the perfect spot, they would subdue the earth beneath their feet. They'd till up the hard soil, one spade at a time, until it was made soft. If necessary, they'd team up horses to haul off large rocks and anything that would uh, interfere with their efforts. They split rails to build homes and to establish fences and boundaries for their homesteads and fields. They dug wells, built barns. Uh, you think of like one person taking all of that on their shoulders because they saw the potential of something and they poured themselves out on that thing in love. When I think about some of that, I don't think it's a stretch to say that no American generation has toiled so deeply and profoundly for something they loved. No generation has expected so much than our American forefathers. They are in many ways truly remarkable people when you really understand the story. But their story makes us understand God's story. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to work the ground and to produce fruit for someone. Uh, so this song that we have in Isaiah 5, it's not really a song about any man. It's a song about God, the vineyard owner, God, the gardener. Uh, the one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, verse 1. But verse 2, but it yielded worthless grapes. How exasperating, how frustrating. God planted a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people 
belonging to himself, serving his glory. He planted them on the most fertile hill indeed, the land of Canaan, the land promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the finest in the world. God labored with great love over his people. He nurtured them with the greatest of expectations. He endowed them with every blessing imaginable, physical and spiritual, his own protection, his own goodness and grace, his mercy, his power. He gave them every benefit. But all of God's efforts yielded worthless fruit. Let me tell you about somebody I love that planted a vineyard and spared no expense and poured himself out for that vineyard and it only produced worthless fruit. Verse three, so now residents of Jerusalem, men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard, God says. What more could I have done for my vineyard than what I did? Uh, When I expected a yield of good grapes Did it not yield worthless grapes? What more could I have done? That's a good question that God asks us, isn't it? Isaiah 5, verse 5. Now I'll tell you what I'm about to do to the vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its walls and it's going to be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned any longer. It will not be tended. It will not be weeded. Thorns and briars will overgrow it. I'll also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it any longer. This is a song of heartbreak. Uh, Despite all of God's labor and love, what other recourse did he have? This isn't like the seed that fell along the hard path and uh, the devil or Satan came and snatched it up. This isn't like the seed that fell on rocky soil or among the thorns. This was prime soil and prime seed and a choice vine. It had every imaginable benefit to flourish. God established a vineyard, a plant. Verse 7, Isaiah tells us what the vineyard is and who the plant is. The vineyard of the Lord of armies is Israel, God's son Israel, the nation of Israel. The men of Judah is the plant that he delighted in, and he established it, hoping that it would thrive, Israel. He expected things like justice, but there was injustice. He expected things like righteousness, but he only heard the cries of despair. God is the frustrated vineyard owner, vine dresser, and judge, and the harvest wasn't so plentiful. This isn't even, in my opinion, the saddest part of this song in Isaiah 5. Uh, The most prophetic part of the song, I think, is in verse 8, where God says to his people, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room and you are alone, uh, you alone are left in the land. I heard the Lord of armies say, Indeed, many houses will become desolate, grand and lovely ones, will be without inhabitants. For a 10-acre vineyard will yield only six gallons of wine, and 10 bushels of seed will yield only one bushel of grain. Do you understand the word picture that's being painted there? 
It's what God's people do when they're fruitless, when they're not glorifying God. What do they do? The people of Israel did it. The modern church does it. What do we begin doing in our desperation? They began building bigger and bigger things. They would take a house and join it to a house. And you'd have a bigger house, but with fewer people. They'd take fields and join them to fields. And an acre would become 10 acres, would become a 100 acre estate. But there'd be less people and less fruit. They started building even bigger vineyards and bigger trellises, and bigger wine presses, and greater towers, and all these things, this largesse. But the more they built, the less return on investment they received. Imagine if you had a bucket of seeds, and you planted all those seeds. What might you expect a bucket of seed to yield? How many buckets would you expect it to yield? In the parable of the sower, If you took a bag of seeds and you scattered them about, you could expect 30 times, 60 times, 100 times what was sown. That would be the natural organic thing. You go to Lowe's and you buy a packet of seeds and you plant them all in your garden in a nice little, you got, you know, your your, your raised bed garden and you got all the stuff, no rocks, no, uh, you know, no thorns, no weeds, everything perfect, right? Up high enough so the dogs can't, you know destroy your, uh, you know, whatever, right? You plant the whole packet of seeds. How many seeds do you expect to be fruitful? You expect every single one to grow and to be fruitful. And even if a couple die, but what you don't expect is only one out of 10 of those seeds to be fruitful. They would plant 10 bushels of seed and only get one bushel return. They get a fraction, not a multiple of what was sown. Instead of what Jesus said last couple of weeks, that greater things than these, greater works you'll do and be part of, there'll be this kind of like explosion of fruitfulness beyond anyone's imagination as you serve God and and, and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Instead of that, a measly return of a fraction. Instead of greater and greater things, the reality for Israel And I dare say the modern church is lesser and lesser, not more and greater you have received. All over Judah, just think of it, these massive houses, these sprawling fields and estates, grand and lovely. You know, Malachi says that they were paneled houses and, you know, spared no expense. Vineyard projects on a scale nobody had seen before becoming desolate, falling under the judgment of God because they're not producing any kind of fruit that the father, gardener, vine dresser, vineyard owner would desire. You know, this isn't just a song about heartbreak in Isaiah in Judah amongst the people of Israel. This is as much a song about God's heartbreak of the once grand and lovely European church, the once grand and lovely American church. You know, the Western church has built the grandest and most lovely cathedrals on all the earth, the most functional, large, amazing facilities and buildings in all the earth. 
I mean, churches are building buildings that eclipse the size of shopping centers and malls and marketplaces in most parts of the world. Think of the Western church. But did you know that the absolute most fruitful churches, you go and grab Outreach Magazine, you look at the, the fastest growing, biggest, most successful, whatever, you know, they've got a glossy magazine cover and these stories featured. The most successful church in the West barely yields a 10% return on its investment of energies. So for every 100 seeds sown, you're lucky to get one convert. For every 100 worshiping, God-loving, church-attending Western Christians over the course of the year, you're lucky if those 100 people produce one new disciple for Christ, evangelize, disciple, develop just one person for Christ in a year. That is considered wildly successful. You know, so that's crazy. But in the reality is, a church of 1,000, if it produces 100 disciples, that's considered exceptional. The, the normative thing, though, is that 100 disciples produce one while losing two to three to natural attrition. You might raise up one, but then this one passes away, this one moves to Missouri or Tennessee or Texas or Florida or wherever, you know, the, the new promised land is. And then, like, the average reality is a negative 2 or 3% return. The vast, lovely European, American churchstead, homestead, whatever you want to call it, what does it do when confronted with such failure? It consolidates. So we consolidate all these little dying congregations out here. We join their houses of worship into one bigger house of worship. We take all these little campuses and we join it to one greater and bigger campus, into one mega space, if you will. We spend more money than ever before, billions of dollars. But our 10 bushels of seed will only yield one bushel of grain. We're not scattering and building the kingdom we're consolidating and the overall net gain of the kingdom is shrinking. Do not be deceived. Even though you see houses of worship that seem larger and more beautiful than ever before, understand what made that place and understand at what expense we are just getting a fraction of the return of investment on the fruitfulness of our efforts in the West. Now that's not necessarily true. The continent of Africa in China, in India, a uh, hundred people produce uh, many churches and many disciples. And there's a, a kind of fruitfulness that's there that's just not present here. And you have to ask why. Now, we're in the Gospel of John. But what we're talking about in the Gospel of John is a new vision of a fresh start. Uh, because... We shouldn't be breaking the Father's heart. We shouldn't be reliving Israel's failure in Isaiah 5. We shouldn't be fruitless as God's people. We have absolutely no excuse to not be fruitful. In John 15, Jesus, I wonder if he sings sometimes, but if you have Isaiah 5 in mind, you're singing about the one you love, the one who has a vineyard, Jesus Maybe he's singing in, in John 15, but I digress. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the choice vine. And my father is the gardener. He's the vine dresser. 
He's the vineyard owner. The parables Jesus tells, the father is always the vineyard owner, right? And the one I love, you can hear Jesus echoing Isaiah 5, the one I love, my father, I love my father, and my father loves me, and I love what my father loves, and my father has a vineyard, and he wants it to produce fruit and flourish. And he planted a choice vine, and now Jesus says, I'm that vine. And Adam and Eve, they were given choice land in the Garden of Eden. I assume it was choice. Rockless, weedless, wonderful, abundant, every advantage. But instead of cultivating Eden, they failed to cultivate Eden. They tried to become like God, and Israel failed to cultivate Canaan. You know, you read the account of the promised land and the land of Canaan and how it prospered and, you know, grapes the size of basketballs or whatever, you know. But they wanted to become like the other nations. Failure, failure. But now God is doing a new thing. He's establishing a new and more promising vine in his vineyard, a true vine, a choice vine. And that vine is Christ Jesus. And the branches are Christ's church, Western European, American, African, India, we are the branches. We are Christ's church, not the people of Judah, you and me. John 15, 2, Jesus says, every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit, he removes the Father. And he, the Father, the vine dresser, he prunes even the branches that are producing fruit so that they'll become even more fruitful. What if all this stuff that's been happening has been a pruning act of God. You know, you have COVID strike and all these houses of worship, small and large, are vacuous. The church doesn't know what to do when it can't build and build bigger and bigger. It it doesn't know what to do. But what if that was a pruning of God, right? To remind us that it's not about the vineyard and the trellis. It's about the vine and abiding in the vine. And maybe he made us really reflect on that over these last years. I know I've thought a lot about it. Jesus says, every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit removes, and if it is fruitful, he'll prune it so that it's even more fruitful. Do you think God's satisfied with a one in 10 success rate, with a one-tenth harvest when he wants 50, 60, 100-fold? Do you think he's content? In a way, God is doing a new thing But in another way, he's doing the same thing he's always done from the very beginning. If you have ears to listen, listen carefully. John 15, verse 3. Jesus says, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you produce unless you remain in me. Is the church today faking fruit, faking discipleship, faking disciple-making and multiplication? Are we doing true growth? That's for us to, uh, for God to judge, I guess. I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Maybe we're trying to do everything without him. And therefore, we're doing nothing without him. Now, you take this metaphor. Instead of, a vi- uh, instead of a giant vineyard, substitute 
our grand and lovely church buildings. Uh, instead of, uh, uh, of in your substitute, our grand and lovely homes. You know, we're not just to be making disciples in some building or church. We're to be doing it in our homes, right? We have the grandest and most lovely homes and churches ever than ever before. Instead of fields, substitute our sprawling homesteads. We have greater, more spacious uh, homes and, 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 and acreage and everything than ever before. Instead of a giant trellis and a wine press and a tower, substitute all the ministries and programs and things that we Christians do, hoping to produce fruit. We don't just do program church, we also do program home. Think of all the things, the ways we program our calendars, our lives. We fill them with this activity and that activity and and this priority and, and all these good things that we think are going to matter to God and produce fruit for God, and yet we're not producing fruit because we're squeezing God. We're not abiding. We're busy in ourselves. But the more and more we spend time, money, energy, the more we invest, the lesser return we receive. This is Isaiah 5. This is John 15. What if for all of our vineyard and trellis making, what's really happened is We've neglected the true vine. We have a funny way of doing church and doing life, tending to vineyards and trellises and all these exterior things while neglecting the vine itself. What if the church, and I'm talking about you and me, what if we were as consumed with abiding in Jesus as we were building up our church estates, home estates, and our family estates? What if it was truly about the vine? We've missed the vine for the trellis. We've missed the vine for the vineyard. We've missed the vine for all of our lovely and spacious places. Adam and Eve's branch died. They were cut off from God and thought they could have the life they needed without God in the center of it. Instead of abiding in God for life, in his word, they, they, they listened to the evil one and, and decided to abide in their pleasures for life, and they ended up dead as a branch. Israel wanted to be like all the other nations and follow all the other nations' idols and and they had a different prescription but they didn't want God to be their God and king and their branch died. Should we suppose that we would be exceptional to Adam and Eve? Exceptional to the men of Judah and to Israel? Uh, Suppose our branch Do we suppose it will thrive when for all practical purposes we're cut off from the true vine himself, Jesus? In John 15, Jesus paints a picture of what abiding in the vine looks like. And it's not unlike what the picture of abiding in the spirit looked like last week. But it's nuanced and it's got its own flavor to it. So let's unpack it for just a moment. To abide in Jesus is to abide in in Christ's word. Make note of that. Verse six, if anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch. You you cut it off. How long does it live? It might look good for a day. You know, you, you go buy a rose, it gets cut. It looks good for a day and maybe beautiful for a week. But then after that, you know, it's pretty much not good. You, you pick it up and you throw it in the compost bin. Unless I, well, I won't go there. But anyway, you can do stuff with it. But anyway, 
It's dead. It's withered and gone. They gather them up. They throw them into a fire. They're burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. See, this connects directly to the prayer. Greater things, you know, you pray these prayers. You know, when you're in the word and you remain in the word and the mind of God is your mind and the heart of God is your heart, that's a powerful life, a fruitful life. And if you remain in me and my, wor- and my words remaining, we don't get to define what remaining in Jesus is. It's remaining in his word. That's what he says. Remain in me and in my words. You will bear uh, much fruit. Ask whatever you want, it'll be done. What hope is there for a wordless church? Can you tell me? You can go look at history and answer that question. What hope is there for a wordless church? Church, let me be blunt. Where in the vineyard is your Bible? Uh, when is the last time you opened Christ's word just to abide in Jesus' words, just to take pleasure and discern his will and, and listen and, and let him feed you and nurture you by his spirit? And, and when's the last time you let that life sap of God's word just kind of slow drip into your heart and mind? Where is your word and and when's the last time you opened it up and really saturated yourself with the words of Jesus? I'll tell you that most every church that shutters its door due to failed discipleship and disciple making has one thing in common. Every denomination that loses its way and becomes progressive and liberalizes and goes off the reservation, every single one of them has one thing in common. Most every home that shutters its doors due to a failed marriage or failed family, there's a common dynamic that's readily apparent in those households. Most every soul, every branch that that dies a slow death and withers up, right, has one thing in common, and it's this, a failure to abide not just in Christ, but in Christ's words. How can you ever thrive or produce fruit when you've been cut off from the wisdom and direction and words of Jesus himself? If Christ's words don't remain in you, how can you bear much fruit? If Christ's word is far from your heart and mind and you don't even think about it because of all this other noise, what hope is there for a wordless Christian, a wordless church, a wordless denomination a wordless nation, a wordless world. So you remain in Jesus, you're loving his words. You want to hear, you desire to hear, just like a relationship. You love your wife, but you don't ever talk to her? I mean, come on. You love the conversation. You welcome the conversation. But more than that, there's another aspect here, and that is loving God. My Father is glorified by this, verse 8, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Remain in my love. Okay, here we go, love talk. You know, what's love? Well, we all imagine sentimentally what our version or meaning of love might be. We don't get to define love any more than abiding. If you keep my commands, Jesus said, 
That's love. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's command and remain in his love. Not just what hope is there for a wordless church, what hope is there for a disobedient church? If God's spirit, if his words, his will, his desire, his commandments, if Christ's spirit never holds sway over our lives, how can we expect to produce much, if any, fruit and far less prove ourselves to be one of Jesus' disciples? You see, it's not just a love for the word, hearing, learning. It's also a love for God, which is repenting and trusting and obeying and actually yielding tangibly to the will and pleasure and and plan of God. Where's the obedience? Where's the love and desire to understand and receive the word? You know, Jesus goes on, verse 11. There's also loving people. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. This ties us all the way back to John 13, by the way. Love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if, oh, now why do you have to throw a conditional clause in there? Jesus is my friend. Are you doing what he commands? Do you love him? Do you listen to him? Do you obey him? You might think you're his friend, but are you acting the friend? Isaiah 7, 5, God expected love. He expected justice, but saw injustice. People were self-centered. They weren't acting in a loving, just, fair uh, way toward their fellow man. He was looking for justice, but saw a den of robbers, right, in the temple. He expected righteousness, but he only heard cries of despair. Now, in the modern church, what does God expect to see if not love? If not righteousness, peace, joy. If not to be glorified by our love. But what does God see when he looks at us? Especially us in the West, in America, in Springfield, Illinois, at Lakeside. What does he see? You go to social media. What does social media see? Hashtags of multiplying pain and cruelty. The failure of the church on full display. What does God see? What does God hear? Does he hear cries of despair in corridors where the church should have been faithfully proclaiming hope and yet failed its mission? I want you to honestly ask yourself, Are you a loving person? Are you a loving person? Not just do you see yourself as a loving person, but do other people see you as a loving person? Like maybe your spouse or your children or your extended family or your neighbors or people far from God. And even more importantly, does God see you as a loving person? The only way we get to Christ's love is by abiding in him, abiding in his spirit. The spirit enables a spirit kind of love, Christ kind of love. We talked about how reliance on the spirit is the key to producing fruit. Abiding in the spirit is the key to producing. But if we don't abide, there's not going to be the evidence of love in our relationships. 
with each other as well. Not just with God, not just a love for the word, but with each other. Abiding in Christ, loving God, loving people. Abiding in Christ, abiding in his word, abiding in Christ. Loving God, which means keeping his commandments. Uh, Abiding in Christ, which means letting Christ's kind of love freely form its fruit in our very lives. God filling us with his kind of love, not the world's kind of love. Is it happening? Is it happening? There is one last point of abiding or question of abiding that gets raised in this text. And this might be the most challenging of all, and it's in verse 15. It starts in verse 15, John 15. It's, Jesus says, I don't call you servants anymore. You know, that's a tough one because he says, you know, uh, serve one another, wash each other's feet. That's what servants do, right? I'm not calling you servants anymore. You know, that servant, it kind of has a, a derogatory idea to it that maybe, you know, if you're a slave or a servant, that you're being coerced or you're complying, you're, you're negatively going along with whatever work schema is foisted upon you and it, maybe it's transactional and maybe you fear for your life or maybe there's some kind of a contract, but, you know, you're being motivated by the least common denominator if you're a servant sometimes. I don't call you my servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I've called you friends. Ah, there is something of a higher calling to a friend than a servant, don't you agree? I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit. And your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. There it is again. The kind of prayer, mountain moving prayers, the biggest and greatest of them all, Uh, The most spectacular are those related to the mission of Jesus. This is what I command you, love one another. People say, why isn't there a great commission in the Gospel of John? I'm like, have you read the Gospel of John? There it is right there. Go and produce much fruit that will remain. If we're abiding in Christ, Jesus' word is not mine. If we're abiding in Christ, we're braving his mission daily. Jesus said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of harvest to send forth workers. What is the explanation for planting a packet of seeds and only one in ten make it and survive and go on to even live, much less produce fruit? What is the explanation? What's the diagnosis? What's the problem there? You plant a bushel of grain and you get one-tenth of it back if you're lucky. Has any generation more fully neglected the mission of Jesus as much as the current generation. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Has any Christians ever forsaken the mission of Jesus as much as this current generation, especially that in the West, in Europe, and in America? Has any generation been more hollow and prayerless and fruitless than the current generation? Uh, Has any generation needed to hear the words of Jesus to open your eyes and to look at the harvest. There are more people than ever before, not just quantitatively around us, population growing, billions and billions more people, right? Not just that, but there are more people disconnected from Christ than ever before. 
lost, filled with despair, trying to find life in everything else but in abiding. And instead of getting on our knees and praying about it and asking God to maybe raise us up that we might avail ourselves, not as servants but as friends to the vineyard owner, instead of getting on our knees and praying about it, we're sitting on our hands idle. That's the reality on Sugarcoated, if you dare hear it. Our forefathers, yes, here in America, built something different than we've inherited and maintained. They built vibrant, word-loving churches. They built Christ-loving, Christ-obeying congregations, not perfect, but faithful. They were a spirit-filled, people-serving, people-loving, mission-faithful people. But now these churches that we've inherited, this generation, all of us, so many of these churches lay desolate. Literally. Look at all the desolate houses of worship and places. You know, there are malls. There are craft stores. They're being reconverted into spacious homes for folks. Look at all the vacant vineyards, the defunct trellises that dot every community as far north and south and east and west as you can see. Look at how we compensate for our failure. Look at all the mass consolidation. You know, we're we're making bigger places at the expense and, 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 and there's a diminishing overall number who are, who are loving God in the vineyard. What greater love can we show our fellow man than to hold out Christ's righteousness in an unjust world? To announce hope where all these cries of despair are being heard. We're not hired hands. That might be your identity. That might be your attitude as a Christian in the church. We're not even just servants. We're not a bunch of consumers. We're not a bunch of like over-programmed, underutilized church urchins, you know, or whatever. What Jesus says is we're friends of God. We're friends of God. Do you have any friends? Friends don't just talk together. Friends sing together. You know, when you talk, you can be kind of matter of fact about stuff, but when you sing, when you sing together with someone, your heart has to really be aligned in order to sing together. And I think that's why Isaiah is singing and not just talking in Isaiah 5. And that's why I think Jesus is probably singing in John 15 and not just talking. When you sing, you share the same hopes and dreams of of the other that you sing with. If God is really your friend, do you take joy and do you sing about his dream? Is his dream your dream? Is the dream of the vineyard owner of the vine dresser, our dream today. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with the finest vine, the choice vine. But now we know even more because it's the true vine that is Christ. God built a tower in the middle of it and dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes. Adam and Eve and Israel fell. But can the church prevail in Christ by his spirit where others have fallen short? And I think the answer is what? Are we willing to abide? 
You can take Isaiah 5 and instead of saying, but there was no fruit, what if we took it and said, and we were faithful and God's seed didn't fall on hard soil and get snatched away by Satan. It didn't fill on rocky soil where there was never any root that formed or, or there was never any depth or growth or abiding in the word. It didn't get choked out by thorns, all the pleasures and worries and our calendars and all of our vineyard and trellis building and tower building and wine press building. It didn't get choked out because of our concern for worldly largesse. But we began to abide in Christ in the way Christ wants us to. Remaining in his word, remaining in his love, obedient, keeping his commands, proving ourselves to be his disciples by self-sacrificial love for other, tending to righteousness and justice, falling in love with God's dream of a flourishing vine and flourishing, fruitful branches, producing 30, 60, 100 times instead of the exceptional one-tenth a God-glorifying, ever-fruitful, ever-disciple-making church. What do we want to be part of? We want to be part of God's dream. And Jesus says, he's the, brand, he's the vine. If we'd abide well in the way that he asked us to, fruitfulness is a settled matter, not an exceptional matter. This is incredible stuff. Let's pray. Dear Father, we need corrective action in our lives. We need to repent and come before you and desire your word. Desire to obey you and let you be the Lord of your church and Lord of our lives. A desire to manifest your love by your spirit everywhere around us, that it emanate from us as your temples. That your mission would go forth, not just of making disciples, but making disciple makers. There ought to be an exponential multiplication of fruit, not just a fraction. Father, evidence your power. Do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. We're asking in your name to do a mighty work in us and through us. Let not one-tenth be exceptional for this church. Let 30, 60, 100 times be normative. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.